Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers who are unified by a shared vision for student flourishing and share an innovative online platform that makes learning simple. I'm Scott Postman, president of Kepler Education. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swait, and we'll introduce another guest in just a moment. Hey, Joffrey. Hey, I'm glad to be here talking talking really philosophy, uh, because our guest today is, is a man who's inspired us both as we think alternatively about education. Alternative is a really good word. Sometimes the word um, alt-ed comes up in a sort of... Uh, at, at times, it can be used derogatory. People use it yeah. pejoratively, um, but I don't think it is. And I and I think that we're going to um, learn some things today that I think will be helpful for us to understand. Um, you know, who are the gatekeepers of education? Why right. should we be um, you know leaning into alt ed in, in various ways? So, yeah, I'm ready to get started. Let's Excited. get into it. Okay. Well, today we have with us uh, Dr. Robert Woods, and Dr. Woods has been in classical education. Uh, for nearly 20 years. He has a bachelor's degree in biblical studies and ministry from Point University. He has a master's in religious studies from Barry University and a PhD in humanities from Florida State University. Dr. Woods uh, developed and chaired the Great Books Honors College at Faulkner University for more than 15 years, and he's the author of Mortimer Adler, The Paideia Way of Classical Education. He is also the headmaster of Veritas Classical Christian School in North Carolina, as well as the teacher certification instructor for Kepler Education. Dr. Woods, glad to have you with us. Oh, this is a pleasure. I thank you for this opportunity. Well, we, as we mentioned um, at the beginning of the show here, we're going to talk about um, education, alt-ed, and maybe a good place for us to get started is to talk about the state of higher education and why people should even consider um, what's being called an alternative approach to education. But what we're going to say probably is it's not really an alternative, but it's kind of a return or revival, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. When people think about traditional education, for some people, their mind maybe harkens back to the old school classroom with the wooden desk and the chalkboards and the the, the chart, the erasers, right? We had to, to beat the erasers on the tree outside to, at the end of the day, to clean them out, and <laughs> that you know, pencils, and we had paper and things like that. I, I think when we think about kind of alternatives to education today, we are talking about returning to the roots of classical education in the Western tradition, recovering what has been lost since about the 1960s in higher education, and that which has been lost in higher education has kind of trickled down into K-12 education. And so if it's been lost in the university, on the university level, in college and graduate programs, it ultimately um, drifted away from K-12 schools. So when you're talking about drifting away, um, from what are we drifting and to what have we been drifting yeah, I, I would say in the 1980s, we can look at the 1980s as kind of a decade where several isms were born and a couple of movements had their 
their first manifestations there. And now we see what it looks like in our moment. So if you go back and read some of the books, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, Who Killed Homer, or you look at books, uh, The Bonfire of the Humanities, and they reflect on the 1980s. They go back even further and say in the 70s and 60s, the seeds were planted. And so the Mm -hmm. seeds of cultural, social, intellectual, and spiritual descent, descending from or, or, or descending from the tradition, the Western intellectual and spiritual tradition that was born in the Greco-Roman Jewish Christian world. That tradition, the descent in America is found in the 1960s, and then you see it in the 70s and the 80s. And so the things of multiculturalism and political correctness of the 1980s, uh, they they just kept growing up. I mean, <laughs> they... They weren't little children that went away. They grew up and now they're adults. And here we are in the world where the various isms and uh, obias that have taken over modern academic training have just swept the day. This, this I'll give you a, a fascinating anecdote. Today, received in the email, the school where I'm the headmaster, we received an email from a grandparent wanting to make certain that as a private classical Christian school, we do not receive federal funds because the assumption is if you receive federal funds, there could be strings attached at some point and various uh, political agendas and ideological agendas may make their way into the private schools. The other thing he said, he wanted to make certain that we were not going to embrace and adopt the American history curriculum, 1619. Mm. I had a couple staff here. They didn't even know what that was. So I encouraged them to get online, do a little digging, do a little searching. And they found a great summation of what's going on with 1619 curriculum, Prager University. It's a fine little eight minute video about what's happened and what's at risk, what we are losing. Can I interrupt for just yeah. a second. Yeah, I, I just want to see if you can unpack a little bit here. And, and um, I hate to interrupt you when you're on a roll because this is really good stuff. But maybe for the audience um, who may not have a, a, a moment to go back and find that video, can you unpack the 1619? What what are we talking about here? And what is what is at stake um, in, in this kind of approach to education? Because this definitely touches on a previous episode of ours. When we were discussing, you know, blacklisting right. of you know great yes. literature and curricula being removed and authors being blackballed, censored, right, yeah, for yeah. daring to say that you know what you we should read the Scarlet Letter or we should read Homer. Oh no no no, let's destroy your career. Uh, be, right, I mean, right. It's because of this sort of thing, Doctor. Oh sure, and yeah, the, the at the heart and soul of it is a kind of recasting the vision of what is history and what is at the heart of, in this particular case, the founding of the United States of America. For most of us, we learned the Mayflower, we learned the Puritans that came to America seeking out religious freedom. We learned about 1776 and the revolution and the Declaration of Independence. We learned that it was about the pursuit of certain freedoms. It was the quest for liberty as properly understood and rooted in a biblical worldview. That's what we learned. 
Well, the 1619 Project is recasting the entire American history in terms of an ism, and that is racism. It is all about racism. Our country is rooted in it. It is defined by it. And there is a profoundly pessimistic worldview that we will never move past it. There will always be these crippling, debilitating problems rooted in these isms. And the, the, the significance of the 1619 number is that that's the date that the first shipment of slaves arrived in Jamestown. So that's the, that's the BC AD year for American history. So with that curriculum, the history of the United States doesn't happen with uh, the, uh, the arrival of Plymouth. It doesn't happen with 1776. The date of the beginning of American history is when the slaves first arrived, which defines the United States in terms of that moment. Yeah. Right, right. And and the truth is American historians have been teaching 1619 as a significant event in our history as being one of uh, the, the an aspect of, you don't wanna use the word original sin of our nation, but it is certainly, a part of our history that we need to be aware of and we need to understand that it is a it is a fabric it is a part of the fabric right. it's a thread that runs through the fabric it is not the fabric well this this touches a little bit on some of the you know you mentioned the revisionist approach to um uh you know to history and and racism is is definitely one in our modern culture that we have you know held on to like you said it's like the systemic racism is here it's never going to die we can't ever get past this this is irredeemable um and and so you were mentioning that a lot of the ideologies and things that being pushed started in the 1960s and and I'm a product of the 80s I I went to you know I graduated wow. high school in 1989 um and and so uh <laughs> You, you don't realize how much indoctrination or how, how much your, your worldview has been shaped until you step out of that environment and then begin to read some of these old books that um, you're saying that, you know, we have abandoned and, and left. And, and all of a sudden you realize there's almost like this alternate reality that, um, you know, that seems alternate at first. But, but then you begin realizing I've been raised in this sort of alternate world, this alternate universe of, of reality that, that doesn't really exist or doesn't work that way. Right. And, and we used to say for, for years, I remember hearing people say that classical Christian education is the education that many of us received even in the public school. Well, you have to be a certain age to say that you received that education in the <laughs> public school. I, I, really, I really don't think there's been anything like what we would call classical Christ-centered learning in the public school for decades. Right. There's been nothing that looks like it. And the the reality is that while there there is some education that still is occurring, in the public school sector, much of American public school education is essentially social and cultural indoctrination into the ideological agenda for the day. Right. And whatever the agenda or the issue is of the day, the week, the month, the year, and some of these stick around for a few years, but it'll pass. I mean, the agenda of the day will pass. Classical Christian education this is what drew me, and this is why I am an advocate 
of Christ-centered classical learning, we are in a conversation with the truths that connect to the eternal verities. Mm. There is a timelessness to what we are always doing, that we, we, we're, not, we're not really that concerned about the ideological or pedago- pedagogical agenda of the moment because this too shall pass. We want to know what truths, what things are good and true and beautiful that are a part of our history and our heritage and the human condition that we can continue to pass that on to our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. That's the difference. So what you're, what you're talking about when you talk about the liberal arts of this Western tradition um, are you saying that that's different than what a lot of folks uh, mean when they talk about the, like the the you know gen eds or you know the prereqs that are called liberal arts in a lot of junior colleges or undergrad and and I maybe to qualify this a little bit I I often hear people in you know the workplace saying you know uh, people are wasting their time and money getting a liberal arts education taking things like the history of rock music and you know and, and some of mm. these courses that they bring up. And that sounds something like like it's something entirely different than what you're talking about. Oh yes, yes. Those people I would completely agree with. I mean, if <laughs> if somebody were to tell me they're they're upset that they they spent thousands of dollars for their um, son or daughter's tuition at State University X last term, they're very upset because when they saw the books and the lectures that they're their child was exposed to in the name of liberal arts education, I would say, oh, I agree 100%. You know, I, I have told people for the last 10 plus years, 15 years, if you really want to know the education your son or daughter is receiving at State University, X, Y, or Z, look at the course curriculum and the course descriptions online. Look at them. And when you see the course offerings, the things that are being offered today, that you can go back to the 60s, 70s and 80s, especially the 80s and 90s and forward to us, and you can see these in common state university uh, curriculum offerings. I had somebody just recently tell me that their daughter was infuriated at a state university in in the state where I currently dwell, was infuriated because she had to go to X amount of hours of orientation training. And you think, okay, oh, orientation training, we could, you, you, that might be a redeemable category. No, it was for her to learn that she was her race, her gender, her um, socioeconomic standing. These are all mm. social constructs. And she needed to be educated that these social constructs are keeping her from becoming the kind of person she should be in relationship to other people and their social constructs. And so the mom expressed to me how she was devastated. The daughter was devastated. She had to sit through this for you know, 20, 30, 40 hours over the semester. Un- unbelievable. So now is this a course that she had to pay for to get her degree? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, had to pay for it. And this particular, this particular university, I won't name it, you can get online and track it down, but this particular university spends more money per student for these kinds of orientation and indoctrination courses for college freshmen. So the idea of the university being 
a place where you're exposed to the great ideas and the great tradition and the great books, the great conversation. No, you're being exposed to what is the agenda for the day. Now, there are still professors and universities and courses that do offer the good, the true, and the beautiful. And and those things can be found, but you have to go looking for them more often than not. Uh, so this is tough. Well, so that creates a sort of cognitive dissonance, I think, for a lot of parents, right, who are saving, um, preparing for their kids to go to college, trying to get them in the right schools and, and you know, so they can take, you know, the right, you know, SAT or ACT test to get into the college they want and then only to show up um, and find out that they're being indoctrinated. So in order to, you know, get a good job, to, to have a good life, to have the college educated, you know, um, track uh, they're, they're going to end up with this after they, they say for all this time. Right? Yeah. And I think one of the potential side effects of this is that, you know, Christians, I think for a couple of decades now have been tempted to think, well, okay, my child may want to study philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to be an option because of all this indoctrination, but you know, I'm going to, let's do engineering. Like that's going to be safe. STEM. Right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. If they learn to build a bridge, then the, you know their 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 exposure to this sort of thing will be minimized, and they'll learn something useful. But at that point, you're you're surrendering what education is. I mean, I think it's very interesting, and I wonder if you'd be willing to speak to this. Um, that you know, the term humanities is, in both both humanities and liberal arts as terms are falling out of favor, but liberal arts has basically disappeared. Right. Uh, humanities is still used, and I think it's because. Liberal arts, if you unpack it, it's much more exigent. It's much more demanding, right? right? Yeah. Because liberal arts are supposed to free you. It's supposed mm-hmm. to do something. Right. The humanities, well, history of rock and roll, that's that's human, right? Mm. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I am, my PhD is in humanities. And I say that I am blessed to have been educated under the old school humanist. Mm. And what I mean by the term old school humanist is that most of them were not theists, they were not believers, but they did believe in things such as truth. And, you know, we wrote, we, we wrote about truth. We read about truth. We read the great books and the great authors, and we received lectures from the great books, the great authors in the program that I was a part of. That program doesn't exist anymore. And I found out that within just a handful of years, that there was an, a shift from the old school humanist that still had some semblance to what we see and what we think about as the humanities, those disciplines, those courses, those readings, those conversations that humans engage in to move us Mm -hmm. uh, toward an expression of our humanity. What does it mean to be fully human, to be fully alive in that rich traditional sense? Those th- those are all but gone. And so you're absolutely right, Joffrey, even just as the term liberal arts has gone the way of the dodo bird or, or the discipline has, sadly, much of what is called the humanities, there's all kinds of things that are classified under the humanities that people 20 years ago, 30 years ago would not even recognize right. today. So 
So what is a homeschooling or, or even, I mean, uh, you know, public school, uh, private school, what is a, a parent who's preparing their children for college? You know, what is it? We've talked about all dead here in, in the very beginning. Um, and, and so sometimes that can seem, or, or it sounds like, you know, they're taking this alternate path. So what are the options is, you know, what are these paths like and, and are they, are they good? Are they better? Um, and, and how do we know that? Well, there are a number. I think there are a couple options. One is you do everything you can to prepare your son or daughter to go into that universe fully prepared. I would also say I'm in that camp that believes that much of what happens in a university has nothing to do with education, but is more a kind of um, rite of passage into some of the American values and those American, many of those American values or some of those American values are not redemptive. Mm-hmm. And the, the defining of the good life in terms of the, the party university, I would say, make certain that you understand that parents understand that their son or daughter is going to be in a culture that is going to be antithetical to all that they hold as good and true and beautiful connected to the Christian faith and to classical education. It is on the other end of the spectrum. And so I would say kind of be fully prepared and you have your eyes wide open, know what you're getting into. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute, they put out these wonderful little volumes, little books on the different disciplines and those are connected to different disciplines and give tips on if you're going to pursue economics in the university today, this is who you should read. This is what you should look for. General education in some universities just is wonky. I mean, you, you read what they take in terms of history and literature and philosophy and what is called education. It doesn't add up. On the other hand, there are still colleges and universities where a history course is a history course. It's not indoctrination or it's not an ideological agenda. So Intercollegiate Studies Institute is a magnificent resource for parents to look at. There's also a volume they put out, I think they put it out every year about colleges and universities. And they describe the colleges and universities that are, to use a modern term, most woke, and colleges and universities that are still sleeping wonderfully in the rich tradition of Western civilization. And those are the kinds of things you, I would want uh, to know if my son or daughter was going to be going to which of those schools and where to find those nuggets, those teachers and those classes that can be a blessing. And Joffrey, like you said, yes, engineering, you, you're probably going to be pretty safe for the moment. But it's the general education courses, the history, the literature, the English, philosophy, the social sciences are going to be those courses where you're going to want to help guide and direct your student, your child that you've been protecting for 18 years. You're going to want to guide them at that particular point. Well, you know, what would you say to me? I'm listening to this and perhaps... I'm beginning to think that maybe I don't want my kid to go to college after all, Mm -hmm. right? So what would you say to me if that were the case? 
If you knowing the human being that God entrusted to you to steward, to love, to guide and direct, uh, I would say get um, Oz Guinness's book, The Call, and prayerfully make that make your way through that book with your son or with your daughter, Uh, at least by their sophomore, junior year, make your way through that book and have a a, a much more um, (laughs) biblical and Christian way of thinking about what it is that God calls us to and how God, how God calls us to the various callings that he puts before his servants, knowing that calling is much more than just a job. You know, the old the old word of vocation mm-hmm. didn't used to have a negative connotation. It used to have the more biblical notion of calling, of being called voke. God declare God calls us into a particular life. He calls us to be his children. He calls us to follow his son. He calls us to serve him and humanity in various callings. So th- that's what that's what I would encourage somebody to do. That's that's fantastic. I, I wonder if um, let's suppose a student wasn't going to be an engineer or maybe their calling wasn't in that um, in that field, but the parents wanted them to have, you know, the the kind of experience of, you know, being at that age, engaging in these big ideas and um, the great books um, and, and maybe whether for financial reasons or, or otherwise um, not um, going to college, you know, be, not going to college became the vocation. That's the direction they're going. How could someone mm-hmm. get the kind of education, you know, um, personally um, to, to be an educated person, even if they weren't going to pursue the degree, um, what would be a good place for them to start or how, how would they pursue something like that? Well, just in terms of the, the knowledge, the understanding and the wisdom that can come with these kinds of engagement of the great books and the great ideas, I think there are a number of resources, uh, printed resources and resources online. I mean, we do live in a unique moment in terms of alt education, the alternatives to education, Students can get online and find the kinds of courses and the kinds of instructors that are more in line with not only who they have become being shaped into the image of Christ in their Christian household, but also the person that they may become, the the person that, you know, the ultimate image of who they are in eternal glory, that next phase, that next step. Uh, I do think there are a number of resources online, and we, you know, I'm more than happy to to do some digging with these folks, and say, okay, here is a resource, here is a website you may want to go to and check out. Here are some academic offerings, ninth, uh, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. Here is essentially a kind of first and second year college education that you can get online while you're working uh, in your family's household, still living together as a family, and you don't have to go off and experience that two-year, four-year rite of passage 
at a college or university. And I think it's so interesting that you, you know, you offer yourself, right. As, as a service, like, you know, it, talk to me because you know, the, the, it's a, it's important for us to realize that we need masters. We need mentors. We need teachers, right? Yeah. So the, it's the, that medieval, it's that old medieval. Exactly right. Cause there is a temptation, a pardon me, but there is a temptation. You're like, don't, we're going to go on YouTube or we're going to Khan Academy and right. if I watch enough of these of these lectures, I will be an expert. And that's almost never the case, right? You you need <laughs> right. someone who who can lead you through and who can hold your hand at moments, who can urge you on at others. You, one needs a mentor. Yeah. And there's you know there's a a really ironic tension I think that we find here uh, if, if we think about the academy, for for example, the church needs historians. Christendom needs historians. Families should encourage their kids to be historians. And to, to go into the university system as it is in the United States right now uh, to study history, it, well, I just don't think it's an option for Christians right now. Yeah. Right? You, there are Christian no. schools, but the, you know, there are, most universities, it's just simply not an option. But we don't want to just give up on history, right? Right. So what what that means is that in order to take the academy back, we need to leave the academy, right? There needs to be a generation or two of true historians, like people who know how to do history and what the art of science of history is, who are educated somehow outside of this main system. So that may, you know, maybe one day in the future we can take it back, sure. right? If we just simply give up on history, then you know it'll, it'll just be ir irrelevant. Well, and, and oh, I yeah, I agree completely. I and I think the the idea of offering alternatives at certain Christian academies or you know academies that are committed to academic excellence and are committed to the great heritage, the classical heritage. And I would say, I know I've used this term more than once. I do think we're at a particular moment in contemporary history, where we are right now, where the image of um, schools being the old monasteries, mm. you know, communities of faith and communities of godly character, that that particular image is making more and more sense and people coming together, like-minded faith, like-minded desires in terms of learning, coming together on the K-12 and even on the collegiate level and forming these communities. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and it brings to my mind this issue of, of accreditation. And, and I have some particular opinions about accreditation. And, and I'm wondering if you might speak to this a little bit because – if, if we leave the university, it seems that there are um, within the university sphere um, uh, of higher ed and, and, and even in, in uh, junior high and high school, certain gatekeepers who determine whether or not your education is valid. And, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about the fact that we should have third party, you know, having a third party, you know, vetting or third party uh, accountability, which is a good thing. Uh, but there are certain gatekeepers who, who seem to determine whether or not your degree is or, or your education is sufficient to do, you know, historical work. And I'm wondering, how do we reclaim that? How, how do we, you know, how do we validate um, or certify that kind of education as being valid in the eyes of those who, you know, if, if we don't go through their channels, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Dr. Woods? I think if we do 
better, if we are better at the process of making historians or cultivating philosophers, if we are better at that than the world and the counterpart within the academy, if we're better at it than they are, certainly equal to, but I, we, we should strive for better than. Yes. I do think, I do think that's how we, we get credibility. Um, I, I, I think that when we, when we are excellent in terms of the study of whatever the, the discipline is, we will get the attention of, the, of people in the world in, in a good way. Um, I th- I'll give you one example. <clears throat> More often than not, we in classical Christian education, and I don't know if this is the best strategy, but it seems to be our current strategy. What do we do when it comes to things like SAT and ACT? We say our scores in classical Christian schools are equal to or greater than, they're more impressive than the scores of many college prep schools. And we say, well, how did we do this? How have we done this? And then we show them how we've done it. That has definitely gotten the attention of many people in the world. And I think it it would be true of any academic discipline or any study. Yeah, I was going to mention that because homeschoolers and and classically Christian, you know, educated students um, consistently uh, outperform on things like, you know, the SATs and the ACTs and entrance exams and national standardized testing. They, they consistently outperform public school and, you know, students. Um, and so in some ways showing, being able to demonstrate is what you're saying, demonstrate that excellence um, all the way, you know, from top to bottom, all the way into post-secondary education. Yeah. And, and not, not just academic. Yeah, not just academics. The the thing I would add over the years being a part of classical Christian education, I've had so many parents and grandparents say, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I say, you're welcome. And you say, thank you for my child, my son or daughter. They look me in the eyes when they speak to me. Uh, my son and daughter, when they have conflict in the family, they move toward handling it in a civil, gracious, godly manner. My son or daughter, when they want to think about something or they want to speak about something, they're articulate and they're civilized in the way in which we approach things. Thank you. And that is the kind of thing that classical Christian education does that's well beyond talking about academic payoff. There is the the payoff toward civilization and, and being civilized. Uh, we, we we need a little bit more of that in our <laughs> culture today, don't we? Uh, yes. yes. So, um, okay. So if we're thinking about these alternate um, approaches to education that uh, are demonstrated demonstrably more, um, you know, more civilized, they're, they're producing uh, young people who are, you know, outperforming, you know, in academics, um, you know, better civilized, uh, more enculturated, you know, students, mm-hmm. then um, it would seem then that some of these alternate um, approaches to education, certification, training, and those things would have a better return on someone's investment financially. I mean, if, they, if, if they're going this alternate route um, and giving them this excellent education without paying, I mean, because let's face it, these 
uh, undergrad bill today is exorbitant. It's it's um, you know a hundred thousand dollars to. Are you saying you don't want to pay ten thousand for underwater basket weaving? <laughs> no, I don't. Right, right. <laughs> uh, or 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 a, a you know a hundred grand for an undergrad that um, you know isn't really going to to do anything you know for most students you know coming out of there except for bringing them out in debt. Yeah, and and you know I do think here's how this may connect to accreditation and what really matters when Christians think about the accreditation process and the various accreditation organizations. I was in a conversation with the chairman of our board who is a pulmonologist and we were talking and I said to him one day, I said, so with your work, you have to, you seek credentialing, you have to have a certain kind of training. Every year you have to re-seek a kind of reaffirmation with this membership that you are a part of. And I said, now you're a pulmonologist. Yes. I said, you would, you wouldn't have a podiatrist come and assess you. He said, no, only pulmonologist. And I said, I said, for me, when I think about accreditation and as a classical Christian school, I do not want to seek accreditation with an organization beyond us that does not understand who we are. We will see accreditation with an organization that says, okay, we know what classical Christ-centered learning is. We will come with you. We will partner with you to make certain that you are doing what you say you're doing. Accreditation is a kind of academic, intellectual, spiritual audit, an external audit. Uh, I recently just went through an accreditation process. I received accreditation from the National Paideia Center because I wanted certain training and certain knowledge that I knew I could receive that outside of myself by somebody who knew what they were doing. And so they offered me direction. They offered me tools. They offered me the development of certain skill sets that to me is what accreditation should be. Often government accreditation is come in, we will tell you, here are the agendas. (laughs) Here are the priorities for higher education today. So you need to make certain that you are meeting those. So beyond the standard one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the standards being met, there is also now increasingly certain ideological agendas being worked into the accreditation process. Uh, so we want we want to stay clear of that as as Christians seeking personal accreditation or being part of an organization seeking accreditation. You know what you're talking about really is community. Right. We're talking about Christian educators, Christian academics, Christian students driving each other on in excellence because you know we talked about you know forming historians or cultivating philosophers that's not as easy as simply saying i am a philosopher right right we're talking about many years of dedicated work i we're in a culture today i can self-identify exactly (laughs) (laughs) but you know so much it's so easy for that sort of thing to sneak into how we think right right? we may say uh we're christians we're going to be more academically excellent and we're going to do this Christianly, mm-hmm. I declare myself a philosopher, okay. right? Because these, you know, we, we, we ourselves have been indoctrinated, right? right? We're coming mm-hmm. out of it. And we find ourselves, I think, at a, at a really a crucial point in, in Western history and in American history that we still have educators 
who were as children and as young men and women educated well. And then there's this yeah. huge gap. Um, and, and then these generations with absolutely nothing, no frame of reference. This is the moment. No, yeah, no, outstanding point because there will come a point where those who were either educated under the old school humanist or those who have been educated, truly educated under uh, the great thinkers and great leaders in classical Christian education, they won't be with us right. in, in our immediate presence. So we need to draw from that in terms of knowledge and experience as best we can at this moment while the while the moment is still here. Yeah. You know, uh, I was recently, we both were, Scott and I, had a, recently at a conference about uh, just Christian masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just encouraging Christian men to to be Christian men and just, you know, looking at it from a biblical perspective and how to build this mm-hmm. biblically. And one of the, you know, the, the creed de cour, uh, you know, that, that all of us felt was, you know, there are no models. Right. Right. It's, mm-hmm. we're, we're, it's just uh, one too many generations have passed. I don't think we're there in the world of education quite yet, but you no. know, rebuilding from absolute ruins is so much more work. And, you know, we should, we should take the opportunity now, as Dr. Woods is saying, to, to seize upon those, th- these hoary heads. Well, I love it. As you're describing this, Joffrey and Scott, I mean, I'm thinking of all these, the, the biblical truths and the biblical lessons, especially from the Old Testament. You know, what happens when, when a generation of God's leaders are no longer present? And how long it takes to rebuild those leaders, and and what happens to the people of God when they do turn to the prophets and they listen? What happens when they hear the word of God and they repent and they turn and they get on the path God, that God calls them to get on? Look at the difference that it makes among the people of God at at any age. And I do believe we're at a particular moment where classical Christ-centered learning. And all the offerings of accreditation and teacher training and certification, the offerings are there now in abundance. And I hope that there are many at this moment that take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to kind of put you on the spot, Dr. Woods. You know, you're speaking of, you know, having um, mentors in our presence, right. You know, in, in mass terms of masculinity, we, we've kind of lost, you know, a generation, but education is not quite there. Um, and, and I happen to think, uh, you know, we have one here with us today, Dr. Woods himself, um, of the old school and, um, you know, having been around, uh, for a long time, um, in this kind of education and, so this is kind of a shameless plug, um, even for uh, what you're doing. Uh, but you're our teacher uh, with Kepler, the teacher uh, training uh, certification instructor. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the courses that you're teaching. And, and because we are doing this um, because we believe in, in what we're talking about. Um, and mm-hmm. so you're offering these courses. Maybe you could talk a little bit about them in terms of, you know, um, not necessarily a sales pitch, but, but really about you know, why you're offering them and what kind of investment um, or, or return on investment the students are going to get from something like and this. And who they're for. Right. Yes. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to. And I, your, your words are very encouraging. Um, I, I remember having that moment in life 
thinking back about the great teachers in my life that influenced me. Mr. Stein, my uh, high school civics teacher, and then Dr. John Sauce, a graduate teacher I had, and Professor Huxford in college. And I think back about the things that drew me to them. And for each of them, it was a love of what they were doing and a love for me. And when I think about my coming to faith in Christ, it was because of a minister of the gospel and his family. They loved the Lord and they walked close with the Lord and they loved me. When I think about what we're trying to do in our teacher training and certification program, I really do believe that is at the heart of it. I love this. I love thinking Christianly about education. I love thinking Christianly about the classics. I love thinking Christianly about the great books and the great conversation. And I love having the opportunity to interact with those who want some of that, who want to know more. And so when I think about the kinds of people who would be in our teacher training and certification, it would not be necessarily for somebody seeking credentials in that narrow sense, but somebody who loves this also and wants to be a part of that conversation and wants to think Christianly about the great books, the great ideas, and do it in a conversation with like-minded people who love the Lord, love one another, and love thinking Christianly. That, to me, is uh, the heart and soul of what we're trying to do in our certification programs. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, our registrar, uh, Kari Christofferson, um, took one of your micro courses uh, that you offered uh, at the beginning mm-hmm. of the year, and she ranted and raved and said it was one of the best educational experiences oh, wow. uh, that she had had, saying that it was, you know, uh, you know, different than what she'd anticipated in terms of it was so deep and rich for just those short little micro courses. And so I think students will really enjoy, um, you know, taking these courses. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe specifically who they're for, how long these courses are? The the micro courses or the, the teacher training the certification? Teacher training certification. Well, the, the vision with the teacher training certification is they're, they're for anyone, as I said, uh, anyone in classical Christian education, whether they've been there for a few years or for a number of years, that wants to come into that conversation with people of like-minded faith who are interested in thinking Christianly about the classics or about the gateway to the classics or about, and this is one of the tracks, is we we really do focus in and hone in on uh, what we were talking about earlier, a handful of very important books by some key thinkers who are at the, the roots of our classical heritage, our classical Christian heritage. And so it's it's for those people that the vision of the tone and the pace is we wanted it to have some teeth, and so it will be a, a bit of a challenge, but we're taking it at a pace spread out over several weeks, a uh, couple hours either. You're engaged in a live class session where we take a part of one of these important works and we look at it together and we discuss it, or you listen to a mini lecture 
or you're in a threaded discussion where ideas are going back and forth on a particular reading. And, and again, it's spread out and it's, it's diversified in the approach. So we don't feel like you, you don't, you're not watching 40 hours of lectures. You're, you're not engaged in just conversations. So we've worked into it a kind of ebb and flow where there's some downtime, some reflection time, and then get together and talk about it and also uh, engage in some threaded conversations. So I've been doing that on the graduate and doctoral level for over a decade, that kind of approach, not necessarily the degree of it, but that approach, I've been doing it more than a decade and have found that it's really been very beneficial. It's been a great blessing to many students. That's fabulous. So this isn't just for teachers, although teachers can earn the certification uh, this is really for any adult or, or upperclassman who really wants to engage these great ideas in this fashion. Yes, absolutely. And we welcome them all. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Woods, uh, our time is about up and uh, I could sit and visit with you and talk about these things for a long time. I'm very thankful for the time that you've given today to um, our conversation. Thank you for the wisdom and insight that you've brought. Um, and to our listeners, all of the um, uh, books and, and uh, courses that he had mentioned will be in the show notes so they can have links to that. Joffrey, any final words? What do you think? <laughs> well, I think, you know, he bore out what we introduced him with, that he's been very influential in how we've been thinking about education. And, uh, and I encourage everyone who's here at the end of the show to go find out more about Dr. Woods, more about what's going on at Kepler with really one of our, our goals, one of our um, uh, maybe guerrilla goals yes. <laughs> is, is, to, is to really help families be fully equipped to be part of, of building the kingdom of Christ through education. Right. right? Yes. And we've talked at length about how education is the purview of the family more than anything else. And so, you know, there are a lot of tools that many people are making available. Uh, Kepler is part of that conversation. Well, Dr. Woods is part of that conversation. Well, and it is a joy. It really is. And uh, the many courses that we we just went through, uh, the one on Augustine's Confessions, we did one on C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, and then the one that Kari was a part of was Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And you just, you can't go wrong when, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a, a great comedian. If the material is great, it's great, right? <laughs> it's funny, it's funny. And, and if you're reading these books, these masterpieces, these classics, and you're reading them with people that really are there as, as those who love these things. They want to learn more and we enjoy the conversation. And we're going to be doing some more of the, the mini or the micro courses coming up pretty soon on a handful of other masterpieces. I would love for you all to join us on that. And I think those micro courses are absolutely a fantastic way to you know, quickly do what some of these other courses can, can do in a longer term sense. And that is just inject you with confidence. You as a, as a Christian parent, I think if you leave one of these micro courses, you'd, I could have conversations now. Right. You can, you can talk about some of these <laughs> yes. and, and know that you have been yes. introduced and, and have tasted some of this. That's wonderful. Once again, Dr. Woods, thank you for being with us. Uh, it's been wonderful and look forward to uh, uh, checking out Dr. Woods' uh, courses and, and things on uh, Kepler.education. And again, there's more information in the show notes. Joffrey? Thanks, everybody. All so right. long. Take care. <laughs>